hear me? Yes? Oh, goodness, you can all hear me now. You can hear about nine of me, can't you? I love this um, routine that everybody who comes onto this stage does this extremely long walk over here for no obvious reason. They sort of, they do this, and they walk around here, and they walk back. Like, I was like, what? You're like 30 years old, Paul. Why didn't you just sort of step up like that? I'm just wondering. I, I was just, that's what I did. I was just sort of, this sort of, we must walk around like this here. It's this sort of little farcical routine. I just, I do wonder sometimes, because um, in my church, I mean, there's a lot of farcical routines Christians do that they don't realize are funny like that. Um, and one of the ones in my church is that almost all of the, well, lots, a very high proportion of the church give by standing order. Um, and often some of the people who are more likely to give by standing order, I don't know if this is true here, sit in the front few rows. And so I think an alien walking into our meeting would wonder what this ritual is that passes empty bags and bowls across row after row. And they're like, they pass in this empty bowl. And an alien would be watching thinking, why, why, why are they doing this? This sort of row after row after row and nothing's in it. And it gets back to about row five and someone makes a clatter by dropping a coin in. And everyone's like, ooh, you're the first person to give into the bucket. And I think well, this kind of whole thing is another one of those. It's, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy being here. I love coming to Hastings and um, I love coming to the birthplace of television. Um, this morning on my drive-in, this afternoon on my drive-in, I, I drove in and a sign went, birthplace of television, and immediately next to it, as if to link the two, it went, 24-hour cameras in surveillance. I was like, this is a bit sinister. It's like, we invented TV and now we're using it to stalk you. I just thought it was kind of a little bit threatening, I don't know. Um, but I, I just I kind of would want to encourage you, really, because um, I've, I've only been here, I think, three times to speak, and probably over about four or five years. And... Your worship times are really great. Like, I would, would want to commend you. I was in a, another very large, well-known New Frontiers church this morning preaching, which um, I won't name. But in, like in my church, and it's true there, and on the south coast, about 20 miles that way. Um, and I was on the south coast <laughs> preaching there. And, and in my church, the same is true. About halfway back down in the room, people just stopped worshipping. They just, they'd, well, they'd rather, they disengage quite a lot. And there's a lot of... Like this. And I looked around today as just a number of times and just found the whole community caught up in praising God. And it's really exciting to be part of. And I kind of wanted to commend you because I know, you know, you, you guys have been very faithful with, with sending leaders. And my wife got saved because you did, you know, and, and, and so is my whole, well, really, my whole family on the other side. Um, I, they all got saved because you sent people. This is 20 years ago, and you don't even know some of the people that you sent, many of you. But it's just had a massive impact on me and my, my life and, and my church. Um, but actually in doing that, you just got to realize, I read a quote, and I wish I could find out who said it, but somebody said something like, not, not a great start to a quote, someone said something like, but he said, somebody said something like, no church can afford to go without the blessing that comes from giving away their best people. And I just feel like you should know that that's true for you. And when I come in here, having just been at two large churches that would be regarded as being successful places where God is there, I come here and I just think everyone in this place is, is caught up in praising God. That's really exciting, and I, I don't say that lightly. I wouldn't have said it if I didn't mean it. I just, it's really encouraging. So I, I just want to tell you that. I'll tell you a little bit about me as well, just by way of introduction. I tend to do a five-minute random waffle bit at the beginning because I speak fast, and people find it hard to pick up on it, and I always get handbagged afterwards. It's usually, if it's honest, it is usually older women. Um, they're like, you do talk too fast, and, and you're never sure whether they're actually going to swing the handbag or whether they're just going to leave it on the shoulder, but... So I kind of do this to help you get used to it. Um, but there was, I'll just tell you a bit about myself. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Andrew. I'm an elder at King's Eastbourne, as I said, planted by you guys, sending people 20 years ago. Um, the, the guy who you sent actually used to clamber on the seats um, a lot. I don't know if anybody does that here now, but he used to walk 
straight through like this, so you get over that one, and you get like this one, and he starts yelling at you, and you, I'm not going to do it, I'm just going to say that's what he did, um, and there was something quite Hastings about him, um, which, which, you know, it was quite direct, it's straight to the point, you know where you stand, and a lot of Eastbourne people sort of have got a little bit, little bit Hastings doubt, and so I've probably got a slightly more as you can just tell by the fact of walked on your seats, a slightly more Hastings manner than I would have had, given that I went to Cambridge University and I'm very... I actually then got bashed over the head with a Hastings man for several years when I first moved down to the South Coast. It stopped me backsliding, as I say. My wife got saved um, because of Hastings people. So I'm very grateful to you. Um, so I'm, I'm an elder at King's, um, and we had a leadership transition from that guy you sent, who many of you will know, Don Smith, um, transitioned to the team we've got at the moment four or five years ago, and actually, we, had a, as a church, had got to a, a place where we'd, sort of, we'd grown quite, um, quite well during the, the 90s. And so things were kind of, you know, flattening a bit um, in terms of just growing. And, and we were just thinking, you know, what's next? And Don really felt it was right to hand over to a new team. And since that's happened, it's, it's just lifted up again. It's gone from strength to strength. We've been really encouraged both, not just in numbers, but actually in what God's been doing in and through us as a community and, and the you know, sense of the presence of God and what's happening. So th- things are going kind of well, but I would want to encourage you that that's... You know, when God often, when God changes leaders, and when you send leaders somewhere else, as you have in the last few months, you've got to know that there's a blessing that comes with that as well. And actually, even if you didn't, even if you, even if you think, actually, no, we, we don't have the same explosion that we were hoping for, you've done the right thing anyway, because you're sending people to establish the kingdom. And I just want, I really want to tell you that from someone who's benefited from what you've done in the past, and to encourage you to keep doing it, um, which is not to say that Paul's on the way anytime soon, but just to let you know, uh, it's really powerful. So I, I'm, I'm an elder of the church in Eastbourne. I also run a year team project called Impact, which I really want to encourage anybody to do. And I was going to use this phrase, um, it's a basically a gap year program, and I was going to use the phrase, um, if you don't know what you're doing next year, consider Impact. And then I had a funny thought. I saw these guys who got up here during the marathon, and I thought none of those people had someone come up to them last week and say, hey, Jim, if you don't know what you're doing next Sunday, why don't you run the marathon? I imagine if any of you had, you would have said, if, if one of them came up to you and said, you want to run for 13 miles on a march day, you would have said, are you out of your mind? Why would I want to do that? I've got a lovely afternoon planned. And the only reason that those people did it is because they, they knew that something about the experience of running that marathon was going to be um, whether emotionally and physically beneficial to them and their, their body, and their, they were going to enjoy, and they were, it was going to be really, really hard work, but at the end of it, they would know that they'd grown, and that's why they did it. And I thought, it's, it's not a great thing to do that in the world and not to do it in the church, and I, so I don't want to come before you and say, if you don't know what you're doing next year, maybe consider impacts. I don't want people who don't know what they're doing. I, I want people to go, I don't know what I'm doing, all right, I'll go and work for the church then. That's not really what we're looking for. Um, it's a gap year of, of local church-based training where people grow in, in their gifts. And Alad did it when he was up here. Aunt Hilda did it, who was contributing. Lou's done it. Loads of you have done it, right? But I just want to tell you, don't do it. Don't come along and do it. Steve Bacon, I can see talking. Alan, uh, Alan and Max Redknapp. <laughs> Alan Redknapp's in a tie. Um, Max, well, is not in the same way. Steve Bacon's just chatting away. Um, it's just a bit disappointing, really, for somebody who's studied um, <laughs> theology and respectful leadership. But, um, but I just want to I both commend those people, but to say to you, if you whether or not you know what you're doing next year, just maybe seek God. Whether you, We've got somebody doing it this year. The oldest person we've had to do it was 69. Um, the oldest guy doing it this year is a little younger. He's kind of about 50. Um, but I would just want to commend you, to you the prospect of saying, I will spend a year working hard in a local church and learning theology because it will be good for me and good for my mission. So that's another thing I do, little plug. Um, I also speak a bit at New Frontiers events and um, like New Day and Mobilize, which I think you guys are going to, or some of you are, um, for young people and students, and I write the occasional book as well. So that's a little bit of kind of my background. I'm sort of involved with a few different hats. Um, 
And I just want to encourage you right now, to, we're going to turn to the Word of God, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. And while you're foraging, I would like you to think which one of your leaders looks the most sturdy and robust, um, because I will ask one of them to come out and humiliate themselves in a moment. So while you're just turning there, perhaps we'll have a shout out in a moment as to which one of them can do a major illustration that involves carrying a lot of weight. But we'll get to that. Matthew 13 and verse 44. One of the things that um, unites us as Christians is our belief that the gift of God to us in Jesus is completely free. And we were singing about it just now, and just song after song after song, saying we haven't done anything. All that we've done was wrong. In fact, every contribution I tried to make to my rescue went the wrong way. And I'm desperately in need of a free gift from God, without which I can't survive. And that gift we call grace, right? That is a unifying Christian idea. Everybody in the room's on board with that. If you're a believer, if you're not yet and you never heard it, it's brilliant. It's the best thing about Christianity, is that it's free. (laughs) And you can't earn your way into it. And we had people even contributing along those lines just now. So we've got this gift that's free, called grace, and it comes in Jesus dying for our sins, rising again to conquer the power of death. And you don't have to achieve good karma like you do in Hinduism, and you don't have to follow the five ways like you do in Islam, and you don't have to just be a good secular person like you do in pagan moralism. None of those things work. Instead, you have to receive the free gift of grace that someone else is giving to you uh, as a gift just because he loves you. Uh, Almighty God loves you and wants to give you something for free. Right? We, we're kind of on board with that if we're believers and we've read our Bibles. We think, yeah, that's, that's the gospel. Isn't that great? But something that comes up, I find, and people find a little confusing in some ways, is that that's not the whole story in the sense that, although rescue, from Jesus can't be earned, rescue by Jesus can't be earned, it's, it's free in that sense. It's also the most expensive thing in the world. So if you want to become a believer in Jesus, you, you don't get it cheap. You actually have to give up everything to get it. And that's a very weird idea, isn't it? Because if, if something's free, it sounds extremely odd to say that it is at the same time extremely expensive. I'll give you a few passages in a minute. One of them you've got open in your Bible now, and there'll be a few others I'll read out, and they'll appear on the screen in a second as well, I think. And I just will, will want to tell you that, that Christianity is about a free gift, but it costs you everything. And that's a weird idea, and I just want to open it up and get you to think, is that true? <laughs> and if it is, then how on earth do we make sense of such a strange concept? Because it's at the heart of the Christian gospel. Becoming a Christian means giving up everything to follow Jesus. If you read through the gospels, you can't get away from it, right? Just in the same way that those guys running the marathon this morning, they don't run along sort of carrying all of their worldly possessions with them. They say, no, if you're going to run this race, you've got to drop everything at the start in order to get in it. Well, becoming a Christian is kind of like that. Everything that you have, you give up and renounce in order to follow Jesus. And yet, it's completely free. So how does that work? Why is that? You have to surrender your life to Jesus. You you baptize people here, I imagine. I really hope you do. Um, And when you do, I imagine that you do what, you you probably don't do the sprinkling, sprinkling thing. No? Okay, you do the burying thing. Why do you do the burying thing? Because you're saying they're dead. Good, somebody said over here somewhere. You bury people because they're dead. You you, You don't, that's why we don't, Sprinkle people, I don't think sprinkling's invalid or necessarily, but it doesn't symbolize the same thing. When you baptize somebody, you are burying their old life and saying, this person has died completely and utterly to everything they used to have, and they've given it all up to follow Jesus. In other words, you are publicly announcing this person's left everything to follow him. But it's free. How can you have a free gift that costs you everything? That's my title for this morning. The free gift that costs you everything. How does that work? I'd like 
to get to a point where there's some frowns on some faces. And if I get some people going, mm-hmm. you know, Scooby-Doo, when he runs past the door and he sees the villain, about three seconds later he stops and his legs keep going and he goes, mm-hmm. I want that kind of noise in the room, even if it's just in your minds, to wonder, Scoo- you, what, you have Scooby-Doo in Hastings, yeah? Birthplace of television, you must have, right? So, <laughs> not anymore maybe. But you, just to understand that there is something odd about those two statements, that Christianity is free and it costs you everything. It should be strange to us. And so I'd like to explore that paradox with you. Um, and we're going to start with Matthew 13, 44 to 46. And I think it's going to appear great. This is Jesus speaking. And Christians take what Jesus says seriously, which is a good thing. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I've got another text in Mark 10, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, this is talking to a rich young guy, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Right? First guy sells everything he has. Second guy sells everything he has. Third guy has to give away everything he has. I've just realized your translation is different from mine. So I'm feeling slightly foolish here. They're going, this guy can't read. Why, how can he write books and he can't read? Okay, so I'm now going to stand and face the screen as I read out the next few, okay? This is in Luke. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his mother and father, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he's got enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and isn't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, "Eh, this fellow began to build and he wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's a long way off and will ask for terms of peace, won't he? In the same way, any of you who doesn't give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. I think we might have one more. This is Paul speaking, Philippians. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, which comes, sorry, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So there's a bunch of verses there which talk about giving up all things, selling all you have, giving everything you have to the poor, dying to yourself, choosing to leave all of your family behind, if need be, to go and follow Jesus and the gospel. In other words, it's about something that costs you everything. And yet, as Christians, we would say this is free. Grace is a completely free gift. So the question is, how can, how is it possible that following Jesus, or anything for that matter, can be totally free and also cost you everything. How, how does that work? I think the reason why we struggle with it is that there, we imagine that there's two types of wonderful things in the world. There's wonderful things that you buy as an exchange, which cost you a lot. And there's wonderful things that you receive as a gift and cost you nothing. 
Okay, those are the two, in our minds, that's how it works, right? We've got great things that you have to buy and you do as an exchange. Um, and those are why you kind of, you know, foreign holidays, you have to pay a lot for that. You think, oh, it's a great holiday, but it's cost me an arm and a leg. A new house, a new car. So we think those are one, that's one category. Wonderful things I have to pay a lot for, they cost me everything, and I exchange for them. And then the other category that we tend to think there is, is wonderful things that you receive as a gift, which cost you nothing. Like Christmas presents, or promotional giveaways. You know, when you're walking through Victoria Station, and there's always those guys, I love loitering in Victoria just to get free stuff. Um, and, and they just hand out you stuff, and you just think, this is great, this is a wonderful thing I've received as a gift, and it's cost me nothing. So we think there's things you get in exchange that cost you lots, and things which you get as a gift and cost you nothing, and so we're modelled about the concept of something being incredibly expensive and also costing you nothing. Incredibly expensive and also being completely free. We find that very strange. But I want to tell you that there's another type of thing in the world, other than the gospel, which works on the same principle. And I hope it'll help you see the an, an analogy, um, just to help understand how can you be the free gift that costs you everything? How does it work? There's one thing that doesn't fit into either of the two categories I've just described, and that's love. Okay, so m- I love my wife, Rachel. You'll be pleased to know. If I didn't, I really should be married to somebody else. Um, but I really love my wife, Rachel. And in some sense, in many, many senses, her love for me is completely free. It's a gift that I did not deserve, I didn't earn. I could have walked the length of the earth on broken glass and I would have come back and said, Rachel, please love me, I've earned it. And she would have said, no, because you're weird and you're kind of a bit up yourself as I was and probably to some degree I'm still struggling with that and you're not very attractive and all of these things. She could have just listed these issues, but at some level she then decided to give me her love for free as a gift and I was undeserving of it. And although I didn't kneel down and worship her, go, thank you, thank you. In my heart, that's often what happens. And I regularly say to her, just thank you for marrying me. I can't believe, I can't believe you married me. What were you, what were you thinking? I'm so grateful that you're in my life. And I I get very emotional. I, I really, I could not earn my wife's love for me at all. It's totally undeserved. It's a total gift. But that doesn't mean it doesn't cost me anything. Because when I receive, in order to receive the love that she is giving me for free, I had to give up all kinds of things. They weren't in order to deserve it or to earn it, but they were in order to receive it. So in order to get loved by Rachel, the first thing I had to do, I had to decide, I had to give up the right to sleep with other people. Right? So imagine if I sort of said, yeah, the love of Rachel is completely free, therefore I will carry on sleeping with other people. She would have gone, no, okay. (laughs) Let's go back to the beginning again. That's not how it works. If you want to receive the free gift of love I'm giving you, there's a lot of things, sacrifices you're going to have to make which is you're going to have to choose not to do this and not to do that. Because I, that, that's not loving. That's not how you receive the love I want to give you. The love is free. It's no strings attached. In a way, it's completely, certainly undeserved. But in order to receive it effectively, you're going to have to give up a lot of stuff. I have to go shopping. I hate shopping. I really hate shopping. Like, I, I don't even... Re- Both pockets in these trousers have got holes. I hate shopping. I don't like going and getting new trousers. I put a, a few pound coins. In fact, somebody the other day, I was speaking at an event, and they gave me the, the cash from the books that had been sold at the event in coins. So a massive thing like this of coins, and I'm just, put them in here, and they all just cascaded out all over the floor. I really don't like shopping. Because I don't like buying new trousers or new anything. I don't like food shopping. I don't like buying stuff. But in order to be married to Rachel, in order to receive the love that she wants to give me. She doesn't say, I won't love you unless you go shopping. But in order to receive love from her, that sometimes involves going shopping. And so next Friday, it's her birthday, and I'm going to take her to Brighton, and we're going to go shopping. 
I've had to give up something that's very dear to me, which is my hatred of shopping, in order to receive love that Rachel wants to give me, but it's still love for free. But in order to experience the beauty of what she wants to give me with her love and her desire for me, I have to make some sacrifices. I made a sacrifice um, 16 months ago. Our first son was born. And that has had a lot, caused a lot less sleep and a lot more inconvenience in my life than was there before. Many of us will be able to connect with that. And none of those things are to deserve the love of Rachel, but they're ways in which I experience it, and they cost me a lot. I would have a lot more freedom, I'd have a lot more income if I wasn't married to Rachel. Wouldn't I? Right? But, that's the way I appropriate or receive or take hold of that which she has given me completely for free. So I will use that as an example, and have that in mind when you think about the gospel. The kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is totally free. It's unearnable. God says, here is a gift. I want to give you the gift of my son. I want you to take hold of him. I want you to worship him. And as you do, he will forgive all of your sins, remove all of your disease. He will exhort you, give you everlasting joy and a new heavens and a new earth. And he will give you the only life worth living in the present. He'll give you purpose and mission. And we say, that's wonderful. It's free. And then he says, in order to receive that, you have to give up everything. So for this, I'm looking around. Who do you think is your most robust leader in the church? Sand straight away points at Beanie, who's only just crept in, actually. Which I was sitting on that seat, so I know you weren't here before. <laughs> Were you running the marathon? Look at him, he looks absolutely flaked. He's like, okay, so we won't ask Matt, he looks knackered. Santino was also the first to point the finger, which makes me think that he's probably the one, because he's got a little bit more energy today. So, San, can you come on out and... Um... <laughs> now, I have here a large number of extremely meaningless Jenga blocks. And Sam, what I'd like you to do... Actually, let's lift it up onto the stage so everyone can see. And we'll pick it up and put it down here. It's quite heavy, this box, right? And Santino, in order to illustrate this for me, I'd I'd like him to... um, uh, Could you just pick up and hold in your arms as many... In fact, if you stand on that side... Always always face the audience, Sam. That's it, right? You don't preach facing the screen, so... Okay, so... Just pick up as many of those and get them in your arms, as many as you can, okay? So, as if your arms are absolutely full of these blocks. And I'm wondering if, actually, since Matt got out of it, Matt, could you just help load him up as, as properly, you know, as fully as possible? So, he's just got as many as he can carry, but without it being totally unbearable. Okay? Now, I want to illustrate... I want to illustrate a free gift that costs you everything. I want you to imagine that here, San is heaping up... You know what Santino's middle name is? Does everybody know Santino's middle name? Yeah. Okay, no, it's all right. You can ask him afterwards then. I d- enough people seem to. I just, I, just, I don't know. He's, he's got a fantastic name, um, and it brings me great joy. But um, <laughs> San is heaping up all these blocks. He's got an... Look at Matt. He's very organized, isn't he? Just building it in layers and stuff. San is... Um, I want you to imagine that these are all of, the th- all of the worldly possessions and things that San cares about. Right, that's, that's great. If you just put that one layer and I really don't want him to drop them now. That would really spoil it, Okay. Now, he, doesn't, he didn't know what I was going to do, so he's just stuck there. Right, now, I want you to imagine this is all of the things that you and I have in, the worldly, in our sense of worldly possessions, right? The opportunities we have, the privileges we have, the fact that we live in a, uh, a democracy and the fact that we're able to vote and not get persecuted for being Christians, or the fact that we uh, have jobs, most of us, and we're able to live in a country, even if we don't have jobs, where we're looked after by a state. The fact that we have money and food and shelter and water and lots and lots of other good things that we have as a result of being human beings in Britain today. We've got lots and lots of stuff, and these things are good and they're valid, and I want you to imagine San has got a whole armload of them, 
And he cares a lot about these things. And actually, if you become a Christian when you already have a family, and you've already, you know, you're married and you've got kids, and then you, God leads you to, to the gospel and you think, oh, I, I want to become a Christian. Actually, let's, the family's in the mix as well. These are all of the things that actually Jesus has said in these few verses we read, you might need to give up for the sake of the gospel. Now, I want you to imagine now, I, I've got um, an HTC Touch Pro, which is basically a fancy phone that can, it's like an iPhone, but it's a bit less cool. Um, and it also has struggles, anyone got one? It's very, very hard to answer. Um, but other than that, it does everything, right? Email, internet, it's just very bad at answering the phone. But other than that, it's a brilliant phone. My life is on this phone, right? So my calendar and my email and my text and all my contacts are on this phone. If this phone gets lost, if I throw it to Sam right now and he drops it, I just want you to know I'm not messing with you. This is a real phone. It's not, I'm not hiding it in a black case and messing around with you. If this man is Butterfingers Hanberis, if that's, that is his middle name, which, um, <laughs> then I'm going to be in trouble. So I just want to set the scene for you. But I want to tell you that this is a lot more valuable than the stuff that San is currently holding. And if I decided today that I want to give San my phone for free, as a free gift, he might well say, that's wonderful, Andrew, thank you so much for this free gift. But I say to him, San, there's one catch. It's not really a catch, it's actually just part of receiving the gift. In order to receive this gift, you have to drop everything else. Not in order to earn it, but in order to receive it, to take hold of it, to benefit from having it in the first place. So I could say, Sam could say, well, then dropping the blocks is my way of earning the phone. And I say, no, 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 you've misunderstood me. I'm giving you the phone as a gift. All I'm telling you is that in order to receive it, you have to drop everything else. Do you see the difference between that and earning the phone? You don't earn the gospel. So Sam is looking from either side of him. <laughs> Shall we see if he's, got the, if he's got the skills? Okay. One, two. Do you think he can do it? I just want... <laughs> Because I've got, I've got a, a, an expensive item here, if this isn't going to work, okay? Okay. One, two, three. Right. Thank you. Leave, leave me, leave me. What happens when we receive the kingdom of God is that the things that we used to hold onto very carefully go splat onto the ground because we've found something that's worth more. And we think this is actually better than all of that other stuff. And it doesn't mean I've earned the kingdom, it just means that in order to receive it, I've got to give up everything else to benefit from this amazing free gift that cost me everything. I think it's the same in marriage. I think it's the same with sand and my phone and the blocks. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about treasure hidden in a field that someone finds. And then did you notice the phrase, in his joy, he sells everything to go and get it. Most of us don't give up everything we have in joy normally. That's why I made the comment about the marathon runners. I find the idea of giving up your Sunday to run and put yourself through bodily pain and basically have a lactic acid fest going on in your body is not my idea of a fun afternoon. But you guys made a sacrifice because you knew that it was going to be worth it in other ways. I must confess to not knowing what they are, but I'm sure there are some other ways, right? Um, now, but with the gospel, that's what takes place. We, we make a value judgment. We look at the blocks, we look at the phone, and we say, that's worth much more than these. I will drop those at an instant in order to get this prize. And I'll do it with joy because I know that what it is, is better. And those parables that we've just heard, they contain more revelation about how to lead a happy life than the entire self-help section in Waterstones or whatever. Right? You, you, you find the treasure, you see that it's infinitely valuable, and you give up everything you, can to, everything you have to get it. Right? Jesus is infinitely valuable. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. He conquered death. 
rose again, seated at the right hand of the Father, all authority, and he's making creation new. He is worth far more than any other thing you have, as good as they often are. And when you see that, when you get, when revelation dawns in your heart, and you think, yes, he is worth more than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth, I will drop everything to get him. That is what becoming a Christian is. That's how you get saved. That's what happens to those of us who are born again. That's, if you're looking at Christianity, if you're here and you, you've never been to a place like this, when I first came to a meeting like this, I thought it was really, really odd. And you're probably thinking there's a lot... Stra- I spoke to someone recently in our church. I said, what did you make of the meeting? She said it was like a cult, to be honest. If you're here and you think, that's what I think too, you are probably just looking. You're probably not in any way ready to jump on board with what I'm talking about yet. But what I want to tell you, because I wouldn't be fair to you if I didn't, is that if at any point you suddenly realize the infinite splendor of Jesus Christ, you have to drop everything to receive him. That's just what, that's the cost. He's free. But in order to receive him, he will cost you everything. So when you find him, you give up everything you have. And that phrase, in his joy, is central to the gospel. Because if you meet somebody who said, actually, I've received Jesus and it's made me glum, they the chances are that they haven't actually become a Christian. In fact, I'm not sure it's possible to become a Christian without caring about your own joy. I don't think you can do it. Because I think the very process of dropping stuff, I'll have it, I'll have it, is that you realise that your happiness is served by taking hold of Jesus. Like that man's happiness would be served by him selling all he has in order to buy this field. If the guy's going, you know what, I can see there's a trade, and maybe maybe it's a, a wise investment for the future, but I don't want it now. You're never going to go and sell all your possessions to get it, are you? So you can't become a Christian if you don't care about your own happiness. If you can't see that the phone is worth more than the blocks, you'll never drop the blocks. You'll hold on to what you got. The free gift costs you everything. And that, in a nutshell, is what happens when you get born again. God comes into your life and he changes your desires. And he makes you awake to the reality of Jesus versus everything else. And you say, oh, I'll have that. Yes. He is brilliant. He is far greater than all the other stuff. And so I'll give up everything quite happily. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, it might sound odd, but that I don't think is just one of many ways in which you overcome sin or live as a Christian. So let's say this is no longer about entering the kingdom. It's now about living as a believer. I don't think that living for your joy is one of a number of different strategies you can use to fight sin. I think it's essential to all of them. I think you can only fight sin if you care about your long-term joy in Jesus. Because we're wired in such a way that we always worship something. We always have something in our heart that we want to give ourselves to and we make our highest prize and the object of our affection and our desire and our love. And that's true for everybody. So I think you can see this in the culture. If you, just to try and do a, a little survey, imagine, what do you think people in Hastings would say if you went up to them all and said, fill in this sentence, if I just had blank... I would be happy. What would it be? What would the blank be? Right? I, what would you, I don't know what yours would be. But a lot of you, I hope, you'd probably, as Christians, you'd say, well, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I am happy and I've got Jesus and it's tough sometimes, but I'm pressing into the things of God. But let's say you didn't know Jesus and let's say you just surveyed people and said, if I had, I would be happy, what would it be? I think a good way of answering that question in our culture is to look at the front covers of magazines. Because magazines almost entirely sell you happiness on the front cover. That if you just browse in Smith's, and you just see this array of magazines. I don't even know what a lot of them are about. 
my, my general experience is that if it's trying to sell, if it's about electrical items, it'll have naked women on the front. I'm not sure the connection. I think it's something about like, so if it's like photographer one monthly, they'll find a way of saying, this is, it. This is a photo. It's just a photo of an almost naked woman. And I find that very peculiar. I don't think it's got anything to do with cameras. Um, but there'll be a way of saying, if you become an expert photographer, you will have happiness. You'll have women like this. Or if you're a gadget freak, um, you'll either get the woman wearing next to nothing, or you'll have, if you've just got this gadget, that will make you happy. If you look at women's magazines, they'll say, if you have this encounter, or this experience, or this trip, or this uh, kind of thing in your home, you know, some of them like, just amazing kind of magazines, which I've, as I've looked through and just done this research a little bit, and just flicked through and sort of thought, what are these things actually telling me? They're all saying, if you had this, happiness would be right around the corner. That's what magazines are, really. They're kind of promises of what happens if you worship this God, you will be happy. And so if you want to see what people in Hastings would think, just probably look at the magazines they buy. The, the magazine I, I buy is quite interesting looking at the adverts um, because they, it's, it's quite a sort of, it's an interesting, um, I, I like reading about politics and stuff. And um, So it's, got, it's an interesting political magazine and it's international. A lot of very rich and wealthy people, I think, must buy it because it's got um, adverts for a type of watch that I think costs into the several thousand pounds um, by, called Patek Philippe. I've never actually met someone who owns such a watch, but I know they must be out there. And it's interesting because their advert is, you don't merely own a Patek Philippe watch. You look after it for the next generation. And he's got a picture of a dad with his son going, well, son, one day all this will be yours. And here's a watch to prove it. You know, I'm kind of thinking, but that's, they're trying to sell that. They're trying to say, when you're really successful, you don't care about trinkets and bangles and baubles. You care about a dynasty. So buy this watch and hand it on. They're still trying to sell happiness. They're trying to get people to say, this is now the next thing that will fulfill my longing for happiness. And actually, if you look at people in the world or in the church, you say everybody is living based on believing that their greater happiness is served by the way they're doing it. In other words, to get Sam to drop the blocks... His Patek Philippe watches, his Easy Living magazine, his photography gadgets and his half-naked women and all the other things that no doubt Sam has floating around in his life. And he just has to drop and receive Jesus. I know his wife says, so I won't. <laughs> anyway, um, but if he's, those are all the things that he has to just let go of. He's only going to do that because he's become convinced that Jesus, as he takes hold of him, is better and more likely to lead to his everlasting joy than all the other things that he's taken hold of. If he doesn't believe that, he won't do it. All of us worship something. Why do, people, why do people lie? Because they care more about somebody else's opinion of them than they do about what God says. That's, that's idolatry, that's worship, right? Why do people commit sexual sin? Because they care more about sex than Jesus. Why do people steal? Because they care more about worldly possessions than Jesus. That's Ultimately, that is what sin is. It's making a value judgment in your heart that something else trumps Jesus, that one of these blocks is better than the phone. And then when you've done that, living it out is just the, is just the next step. That's what almost happens without us thinking about it. So the way to fight sin is to change what you worship. And you can only do that by replacing your idol with Jesus, by selling everything you have to get the treasure, by going for the free gift that costs cost you everything. I want to read you a quote from, if you think this is just me and I'm off on one and I've been hastings a bit too much, I just want to read you a quote from a guy called Thomas Chalmers who was writing back in the 17th century and he said, he preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Okay, so it's in oldie English but it's dynamite theologically. So 
Hang with me. Chalmers is cleverer than me. He's more godly than me. So listen to him rather than me if you get the choice. Okay, this is this is great stuff. He said the present desire is not to be got rid of simply by destroying it. It must be by substituting another desire and another line or habit of exertion in its place. And the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object is not by turning it away to desolate and unpeopled vacancy, in other words, nothing, but by presenting to its regards another object still more alluring. That's how you fight sin. He says it's thus that the boy ceases at length to be the slave of his appetite, but it's because a manlier taste has now brought it into subordination. And that the youth ceases to idolise pleasure, but it's because the idol of wealth has become the stronger and gotten the ascendancy. And even the love of money ceases to have the mastery over the heart of many a thriving citizen, but it's because it's drawn into the world of city politics and is now lorded over by the love of power. There is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having one object or another, this is unconquerable. Such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have a something to lay hold of, and which, if rested away without the substitution of another, would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the body. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Let's not cease then to ply the only instrument of powerful and positive operation to do away from you the love of the world. Let's try every legitimate method of finding access to your hearts for the love of him who is greater than the world. Thomas Chalmers is saying, if you want to get people to drop their blocks, you won't be able to persuade them to do it unless they think the thing that they're getting hold of is better. You won't get the man to sell everything he has to buy a field unless he thinks there's treasure in it. And you certainly won't get him to do it in his joy unless he thinks there's treasure in it. He'll think he's got a bum deal. But if instead you say, no, I I understand the beauty of what I'm receiving in the gospel and I know it's going to cost me all I have, but I willingly, happily sacrifice it for the sake of this incredible free gift that God wants to give me in Jesus Christ, then you've been born again. You've got it. And if in your heart something is stirring now as you're thinking, do you know what, I... I would really love to see Jesus like that, and I believe he's beginning to awaken me. Now, maybe that even now the Holy Spirit's stirring your heart to see eternal realities, and it's a beautiful thing when that takes place. See, if you want to fight sin, you don't do it just by trying hard not to do wrong things. You don't do it by saying, I value sex more than Jesus, but I'm going to try really hard not to sleep with other people. Instead, you, you change, it's the desires of your heart. You say, I choose to delight in Jesus. I choose to sell those things to take hold of the person of Jesus because he's better than those other things. So if, you, if you've got something that you really, really want to do and you're just trying hard by willpower not to do it, it's very, very hard. You've probably come across this one before, but don't think of a pink elephant. Okay? Right now, don't think of a pink elephant. I want you to try your hardest not to think about a pink elephant. It shouldn't be very difficult. You're in control of your mind, but this pink elephant with his enormous pink floaty trunk and his massive pink ears and his huge pink whatever, I don't want you to think about him at all. Banish pink elephants from your mind, Christians. You just go, flip. that's weird. Because if I can't do that, how am I going to stop sinning? But now I'll tell you what I do. If somebody tells me not to think of a pink elephant, I think about a blue mouse. And I think about his little blue ears and his blue... And I imagine him scuffling along the ground and suddenly wither the pink elephant. He's gone. You don't just try and stop sinning. You replace your desire with something better. 
You don't just go, I'll live in a vacuum. I won't delight myself in God and I won't delight myself in anything else either and hopefully I'll get through. You say, for me to contend with some of the blocks in my life, for me to drop them, I have got to repeatedly remind myself of the beauty, the excellence, the wonder of Jesus, which is why, as a congregation, we spent the first 45 minutes of this meeting reminding ourselves how beautiful Jesus is. And we're to keep doing that. And not just with a guitar, we do it the whole time. We do it in our family prayer times. So dads, get together. I've, I've only got a 16-month-old son, but I already want to set the tone of the family getting together to enjoy God, even if it's only for a few minutes at a time. Let's build it into family, build it into office life, build it into everything you can. Because if people we know don't delight in Jesus, they will sell out for something else. And no amount of exhortation not to do nasty things will stop them. The only way you get rid of the pink elephant is with the blue mouse. The only way you get rid of the Everything you have is to get the treasure. The only way you get rid of everything is to receive the free gift. That's better. You can't remove idols from your lives, but you can replace them. Now, the answer isn't to say, I really want money, so I will, but I will try not to do anything wrong in order to get it. The answer is to say, money isn't my God. Jesus is my God. Jesus is more satisfying than money. And so I will pursue him with my whole heart. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. I'm just going to end, wind up here and then I'm just going to just hand back over to Paul and just see where we want to go with the final couple of minutes. I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. Because I want to particularly talk to you. If you've never, if you've never taken hold, you, you realise, actually, I've heard a lot about Jesus, but I must admit, that moment when someone threw me Jesus and I, I haven't ever done that thing where I dropped everything to get him, that's never happened to me. Some of you know that that's not happened. And some of you might be in a place to say, I want to. Others of you might still be considering it, but I want to be honest about what it takes. You cannot just bolt Jesus onto your list of already blocks. Just go, I'll just, yeah, I'll fit him in somewhere. Jesus isn't like that. In the Bible, he's referred to as the stone that got chucked to one side that then ended up having to become the chief cornerstone of the whole building. He's, he's, he's not someone, a, a cornerstone, you know, a big masonry, big kind of L-shaped stone. You can't just slot into an existing wall. You have to rip down the wall and start again with this at the center at the beginning. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. I want to tell you that so that no one's kidding you. But I also want to offer you an opportunity. Some of you, I just think, you may be in a place where you think, I've never done that and I want to do it now. I've, something about heavenly realities has been stirred in my heart. I've got it. And I don't understand what to do about it all yet, but I really want to take hold of the free gift that cost me everything. I'm up for that. So can we just all close our eyes? I just want to give you an opportunity. I'm, just going to, I'm not going to ask you to do anything other than simply to raise your hand and wave. And then I can see who you are. I'm going to ask if you would like to respond to Jesus and you think, I know I've still got questions, but I want to take hold in some way of this free gift that cost me everything. Could you just stick your hand up right now and wave at me? I can see who you are. Just give it a few seconds. Anybody out there who's just like, yeah, I would like to do that. Okay, that's fine. You guys already have done that choice. Okay, so now I'm talking to a room full of people who have already, who are either still looking, great, come back next week, come back the week after, find out if Jesus rose from the dead on Easter. But for the rest of you, you're going, I've done it. Actually, and I just, this, in some ways, this message just serves as a reminder to me to take hold again of the beautiful Jesus that I met, that I thought this is worth everything. This is worth giving up everything. And there may be individual ways in which we need to respond to that. I'm just going to ask you, just let's stand and I'll pray. And just to give you an opportunity now, just in your hearts, say, actually, Lord, is there a block that I'm trying to worm back into my arms? I just want to remind you, Jesus. Let's, let's, I'll just pray. Jesus, I want to remind you, and we together want to remind you as this church, that you are better 
than all of the other things we know. And, and that sometimes those things in our sin, that we, we pick them up again and we, we, we look back to them and think, oh, that was, that was nice in some ways. But Lord, I want to remind you that your gift in Jesus is so much better than everything else that I've ever experienced that I would just happily, again, renounce those other things. And I'll say, Lord, if anything like that's got a grip, I just want to thank you that you are better. You promise satisfaction. Life everlasting, kingdom to come, new heavens and a new earth, resurrection life. Lord, this trumps that gadget. This trumps everything else I could run for. And I thank you, Lord. We, as a church community, we thank you, God, for being so worth it that you cause us to give up stuff with joy in order to find you. Thank you, Lord, that when we find you, we don't mope around thinking, I wish I had that. We see Jesus and we say he is so beautiful, so glorious, so majestic that I would happily go through it all again and I will keep giving up what I have to get him because I love him and he's better than anything else the world offers. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your presence with us. Amen.